welcome to all who are here. My name is Beth. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah, who is um, for us such an example of a, of a warrior for Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all that you teach us, all that you give to us, and your Holy Spirit that you give to us that we might um, really be able to take in your word and have understanding. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would now um, be present with us, that you would um, not only help us to hear, but to take in, to eat your words and to um, make them food for our lives. We pray that we would be um, ready listeners, that we would want to hear what you have to say to us. And we would pray, Lord, that you would speak to us as we um, listen to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we've had some, on the first Sunday of every month, we've had testimonies for the last uh, year and a half or so, and different people have shared with us their story. And in hearing their testimony, we're hearing two things. One is we hear um, their context, and it helps us when we hear their context to understand them a little bit better and to know them a little bit better. And the other thing is that it gives testimony to what God is doing in their lives. And we've heard that at the baptisms a couple of weeks ago, as well as up here. Uh, next week, Janice is going to be sharing her testimony with us, and we're, we're looking forward to hearing that. Um, and it really gives us a bigger picture, a bigger picture of who they are, but even more so of who God is and how God um, interacts with us and how he moves in our lives, and we're all different. We all have a different story. And so that um, context gives us really a bigger picture, and that's what we're doing when we're looking at what it is um, to be a warrior for Christ. Not only how do I do it, but what is the bigger picture that I need to see in order to be able to do it effectively? And so that's what... Um, we're looking at, and uh, in order to do that, I have to give you some background, which I love doing, because this is one of my favorite parts, is understanding the history and understanding the bigger picture so that we understand um, this, this more detailed picture of Nehemiah. So um, I, I won't go back to Genesis this time. I know that you all were hoping I would, <laughs> but I won't. Um, we'll just go back to 536 B.C. And uh, 536 B.C. was when um, King Cyrus made his decree. And his decree was actually prophesied 160 years before that by the prophet Isaiah. He even named the king that it would be King Cyrus. And so the prophecy was very accurate. And so even 160 years before the event, the scriptures told us what was going to happen. And at that time, the problem wasn't even there, let alone the solution. And so what had happened was the people of Israel, uh, the Assyrians came in and they, they wiped out a whole chunk of the tribes of Israel that were now shifted around and gone. They left the two major tribes, Benjamin and more specifically Judah, which was the large tribe. And that became known as Judah overall because of the large tribe of Judah. And that's the 
part of Israel that we're most concerned with in our story. So Judah was left, and instead of learning their lesson from what happened to the northern tribes, they too fell into great idolatry, and they had idols all over the place. Every tree, it said, was a place of idolatry where they would worship these idols under every single green tree, is how the uh, scriptures put it. So they really turned away from the Lord, and they followed after these idols. They brought the idols into the temple, even into the main worship areas of the temple, and they worshiped these idols. And God said, I'm warning you. And repeatedly he sent his prophets to warn them, They would not listen. In fact, they killed a lot of the prophets, or they put them in prison, or they beat them up, and they wouldn't listen. And so finally, God did what he said he was going to do, which was put them into captivity. And he put them um, into captivity by raising up this godless nation, Babylon, to come and defeat them. So Nebuchadnezzar defeated them. He took them into captivity, and there, there they were. And when they were in captivity, we have some important prophets there. We have Daniel. He's gone into captivity. In the second siege, Ezekiel went with 10,000 into captivity. And then we had the third siege that came as a result of something in particular that happened. When Nebuchadnezzar, now he's defeated Israel, they don't have any um, real ability to fight anymore. And so they're paying homage to Babylon, which means they pay the money. And they say, you know, we'll be quiet and subdued and we'll pay you money. So that went on for a little while. But uh, King Zedekiah rebelled and he stopped paying tribute. He says, forget it. I'm not paying any more tribute. We're going to make friends with Egypt and we don't need Babylon. They didn't turn back to the Lord. They just stopped paying tribute. And Nebuchadnezzar, that was it. And so he marched in and he completely decimated it. Everything in Jerusalem was torn down. The walls were reduced to rubble. The temple's gone. Everything in the temple of value has been carted back to Babylon. And it's over for Israel as a nation, so the world thought. Because how can they rise out of the dust? And so there is Israel in a um, complete shambles. And in the middle of this destruction, God gives hope. He always gives his people hope, even in the midst of catastrophe. And so in the middle of this catastrophe, he gives to the prophet Jeremiah, who was left in Jerusalem in the middle of all this rubble heap, He gives him a prophecy, and he says it's going to be 70 years. That's how long this captivity is going to last. In other words, they're going to come back. God is going to bring back this remnant back to Israel. It's not over for Israel. And so God gave them hope. And Daniel read that um, prophecy of Jeremiah's. It got to Daniel somehow, and he read it. And he had hope. And Ezekiel had hope. And others had hope. And so that's how it went. And so the 70 years passed. And um, Babylon was defeated by the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. King Cyrus was the main king, and he made a decree. And he said, because of God's good favor, he said, you guys are going back, back and to rebuild. And so that's what happened in the days of Zerubbabel, who went back. And the first thing he did when he got back there was to rebuild the temple. And so anytime God's people are being rebuilt 
and refurbished and getting up again off their feet after a time of decimation, after a time of apostasy, it's going to start with worship. And so these people started with worship. And the temple got built, but they didn't do the worship as it was prescribed in the law in Leviticus. And they didn't really um, turn to the Lord in a big way. And the the godly people were very distressed by this. And uh, so Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, but the walls of Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself is still a mess. It's still a rubble heap. And so there it was. And we've seen that actually in our day and age. I don't know if... uh, you know, it's starting to be enough years that not everybody remembers in their um, in their lifetime. But 911 happened, and I remember being on the road and coming back and seeing on TV in the morning the um, what had already happened was the first plane had hit the first building, and the second one hadn't happened yet. And we're watching it on TV, and all of a sudden, there's footage at that moment of the second building being decimated by the second plane. And everybody is in shock because it was bad enough the first building to see it happen again without it being stopped was so shocking. And it was not just wrecking the top, like as we watched, it took a while for the whole thing to collapse, which again was shocking to watch on TV. And so this is unfolding in front of the world's eyes what's happening in New York. And all of us are falling on our knees and asking God to help us. And the whole nation turned to God in the U.S. as well as in Canada because of the close proximity and the relationship, turned to God. The churches were filled with people who were turning to God and asking him to help. Was all of the U.S. decimated? No. Was all of Canada even touched? No, not really. There were other things that happened. But what happened was two things that are huge for any nation. One is fear. Fear came in. It changed so many of our policies and procedures. It changed an attitude of a nation. And fear became something that we lived with that we never had before. We often talk about how we used to, how we used to let the kids go out and roam around on their own, how we used to do this, how we used to just get on a plane with whatever was in our pockets. We didn't care. Nobody else cared either. How we used to do things, and it no longer is like that. The world changed with 911. And the two things that happened were fear, and the second thing is shame. Shame for a nation is a terrible thing. Shame for a person is a terrible thing. And it does awful stuff inside. And this, if we can just get a picture of how it felt for the U.S. What did um, these, these ones who had attacked the U.S., what did they say? They said things like, you should be in fear. And you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed of the way that you act, of your prosperity of how you operate and we're going to put you to shame they were saying to the nation and that shame in a sense is taken on when we leave the rubble heap and we don't deal with the fear and the shame and the question for us is is there fear in your life 
And the second question is, is there shame? And those are the two things, because we all have had those feelings. And some of us are living in them, and some of us are directed by those feelings of fear and shame. And the Lord would say, that's not for a warrior. It's going to be different for you. And we see that in Nehemiah. And what we want to do is we want to find out how did he um, deal with the vulnerability, the fear, and the shame that he felt. So the walls are a shamble, the temple's rebuilt, it's not really being used properly, but at least it's there. And uh, it's 90 years later. Now, not everybody went back to Israel. When the remnant went back, not all of them went back. A lot remained in Persia. And in Susa, the capital of Persia, which is um, further east from Babylon. And so uh, a lot of them settled in Persia. And they became wealthy in Persia. Part of that was because of what happened under Queen Esther. That happened in that period of time. So between the first group going back and um, the second group is going to go back and there's a third group that's going to go back. So there were three sieges, just like there were three returnings to Israel. So in that time frame was uh, King Ahasuerus, or we also call him Xerxes, but I won't call him that because it will confuse us when we talk about our tax Xerxes. So um, King Ahasuerus, who married Queen Esther. And you know the story of Esther, and if you don't, you can read it. It's a wonderful story. But the Feast of Purim was inst instituted. And the Feast of Purim was really a celebration of God's um, redemption even in the land of Persia and of the protection that God gave them in that land because they were threatened to be wiped out. And so instead of um, them being wiped out, they became very prosperous. The Jews in Persia became very prosperous and they settled in Persia. They stayed there. And then you have this group that did go back to Jerusalem, but they settled in the rubble heap. So you've got the ones who settled in their wealth in Persia, and the ones who settled in their rubble heap in Jerusalem. Isn't that a picture of the church? That happens all the time. We settle for our circumstances. Sometimes we're in prosperity, things are good, and we're settled, we're happy, we don't need to know what's going on with everyone else, or if we do, it's just kind of out of interest. Or we settle in our rubble heap with things a mess around us, but that becomes our new normal and we just live with it. And we don't take action on how to change that. So they were settled, and the question is, do I settle? Do you settle? What is your situation? Are you feeling settled? And you don't really care what's happening around you. And that's one of the things that the Lord is going to be pushing us to be getting out of that mindset and into the mindset that we are sojourners here. This isn't our home. This isn't permanent. We are sojourners on earth. And he is going to be bringing in his kingdom. And that's where our real citizenship is, is in his kingdom. So uh, 478 B.C., um, that was the Queen Esther story, 464 B.C., which is now into his son's reign, King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes, um, is, he was actually called um, uh, Longamanus, which is Latin for long-handed. 
and that was a nickname that was given to him. And what it meant was that he was long-handed in his right arm and short-handed in his left arm. So in other words, he was, he was a good king, he was um, considerate, he was fair, he was just, with his strong right arm of justice, and he was short in terms of, um, he, he wasn't a harsh king, so that part of him didn't deliver as much. And so he was called Longamanus as a nickname by the uh, historians that wrote in the, the days of the Romans. So King Artaxerxes, he was the one who made the decree that um, they were to go back and rebuild under um, Ez, in Ezra's time. So Ezra led back that whole group, and they started to rebuild Jerusalem which was great. So they're building all this rubble that's there. They're starting to get a grip on it. So they start cleaning out the rubble. They're building their houses. And then the work stops. And the work stopped because they met with um, contentious individuals that were political officials that were in the Jerusalem area. Now, they weren't Jews. They were Samaritans and others that were in that area around who kind of moved in to the area of Israel and taken over. And they didn't like the fact that these Jews were coming back. And so they made... Um, they made these false accusations and wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes back in Susa and Persia and said, these people are wicked people. Look at your history books and see what they did because they will raise up and they will rebel. And they're a strong people. So they will have some strength behind them if you let them get a foothold here. So you've got to stop this building. So when the letter got to King Artaxerxes, he looked up his history books and he, to see if that, that was correct, which is what a good king would do. And indeed he found, he read about David, he read about Solomon, and he read about the strength of Israel, who was, which was um, really at its best, at its height in those years. And then he read about the kings that followed and how they often would rebel against whatever was happening in their days because they, you know, God used Assyria and he used these other nations. And then he read about what King Zedekiah did. And King Zedekiah had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar only, you know, so many years before and had not paid tribute. And um, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent uh, Gedaliah to be in charge, like the governor there, they actually assassinated him. So they did have a pretty bleak history. And so King Artaxerxes reads this and he says, wow, that's right, they are rebellious people. Stop construction. And so in Ezra's day, um, or in that time, the construction got stopped. So that was six years of um, Artaxerxes' reign. And uh, for 13 years, it stops, and the rubble is there. So Ezra's gone back, and this is, it's not sort of like, you, you can't just get back and forth that easily to Israel. I mean, it looks on our maps like it's close. But they would have to go all the way up. They can't go through the desert. So they would go all the way up the Euphrates and around and then down um, along the Mediterranean coast there to get to Israel. That's how they did it. And so that would take them a couple of months. And it was a long journey, and it was a dangerous journey. And so they would wait for a caravan, and the caravan moves slowly. So it takes several months to do this, this trip. And so you don't just sort of decide you've got a week's vacation, you're going to go to Israel. It's like we do here. So... Um, 
So there's not much news that comes back. And our story opens with uh, Hanani, who is the brother of Nehemiah. He's been to Israel, and he comes back. And Nehemiah is very keen to hear how goes it in Jerusalem. Like, what's happening? There's no news. CNN's been on the blink for 13 years. I know nothing. And so um, Hanani comes back and tells him. And I'm going to read out of uh, Nehemiah. We're going to do the whole chapter. I'll just go up to verse 4. Now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. So the capital of what country again? Persia, right. That Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. So fear and shame. They are in fear and they are in shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now these are not like our little tiny wooden gates. These would be massive city wall gates that are burned. And that's the way to keep the enemy out. These are the massive walls of stone. Like these are not just sort of little walls that you can, with a hammer, eventually be able to break it down. These are massive, massive stones that uh, you could not even have, you know, several men putting their arms around it. They're so huge and so heavy. And they're all in a rubble heap. And there they are in a rubble heap, and it's a mess. And the walls, there's no defense, in other words, for Jerusalem. And because there's no defense, people walk by and go, Jerusalem, that's a wasted city. It's useless. It's no good. It's a rubble heap. They can't defend anything. They're at everybody's mercy. And so people would ridicule the city. Travelers would ridicule this mess of a city. It's not a beautiful city. It's an ugly city. It's a mess. And their shame is written all over the streets because of the rubble. And when I heard these words, says Nehemiah, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is probably the kind of prayer that Nehemiah was praying, because this was written in the captivity in Babylon. And I'm reading out of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. In other words, they couldn't play their musical instruments. They were so downcast, there was no music in them to be able to play. For there our captors demanded of us songs, like in derision, come on, sing, sing. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Like, this isn't the promised land. How can we sing the Lord's song, they say? And here's what they lament. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. 
That would have been Nehemiah's prayer. Now think about this. Nehemiah would have been born in Persia, not in Israel. And yet his heart is so for Jerusalem. And it's not just about the place. It's because Jerusalem is the only city in the entire world, in the entire history of the world, that has ever had God's name on it. God said, this is my city. God said, I will put my name in Jerusalem. He has never said that about another city. And so as Jerusalem goes, is a reflection of God's glory on earth. Think about that. As Jerusalem goes, that's why Jerusalem is still such an issue this many thousands of years later. It's because God has put his name on that city. And when that city is not following after God, either because of their own faithlessness or because they've been invaded, it's because it's, it's a reflection on the glory of God. And so Nehemiah understands this, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, if I forget you, may my right hand be cut off. May I not even be able to speak because of the sorrow within my soul. It's not Jerusalem. It never is Jerusalem. It's God's glory. That's what counts. And Nehemiah clearly understands that it's God's glory that makes the difference. It's, about, it's not about Nehemiah. It's not about the people of Israel. It's about God's name and his glory. And so Nehemiah laments and he weeps. And, you know, he doesn't... We talked last week, um, Pastor John, about effective and ineffective prayers. And just think of Nehemiah. Here's, a, here's Nehemiah in ineffective prayer and see if it doesn't sound a little bit like us. I know Jerusalem is ruined. It's our parents' fault. They were there. They sinned. And now look what's happened. And now this is why I'm in Persia. And Lord, I just thank you that life is good here in Persia for me. I've got a pretty important position as the cupbearer to the king. So my prayer is that the king isn't poisoned. Because if he's poisoned, I'll be poisoned. And so I hope that there won't be any poison coming our way. And I also, um, I'm with the king and the queen all the time, so help me not put my foot in my mouth. And uh, thanks for everything. It's good. It's good. I'm happy. Jerusalem, I know it's decimated. It's too bad. They should have paid attention. It's their own fault. But me, I'm worried about now, who am I going to marry? And um, bless me. Bless me, God. And um, what's for supper? Oh, yeah, no, I'm praying right now. That's an ineffective prayer. But Nehemiah is not an ineffective prayer. He is not an ineffective warrior. Because our war is in the prayer room. And so we're going to look at how he prays and see how he deals with these tools of the enemy. Fear and shame. They are tools of the enemy. And I like that song that uh, April and Becky sing, Fear, You Are a Liar. And the, the lyrics of that are wonderful lyrics. They're, they're so good. And I recommend that you look them up. But are these threats for you? 
Is fear and shame part of your makeup? Or maybe you haven't even really thought about it. Reflect on that. Think about why you do what you do. What causes you to act the way that you act or react the way that you react? Fear and shame are tools of the enemy, and they will be a threat to us. And so he wept and he mourned for days. And he's a man of action. We're going to find that out. Nehemiah is like one of these guys that gets to it. He's organized. He figures stuff out. He's got a plan, and he works that plan. How is it that he doesn't work any plan right now? He doesn't get up and start doing. He weeps and he mourns, and he thinks about and he contemplates and he goes to the Lord about the situation in Jerusalem. He asked, not just out of wanting to know what's going on, he's actually deeply concerned about God's name in Jerusalem. And when he hears that the people are reproach and that the walls are completely destroyed still and nothing's happened, he's filled with sorrow and he's filled with uh, the horror of it, really. And so um, his second thing was he fasted and he prayed. And I've thought about this fasting. Like we're taught, you know, the spiritual disciplines and you're supposed to have your daily quiet time and you're supposed to read the word, um, read through the Bible, and you're supposed to pray and you're supposed to do all these things. And one of the things that's on the list is fasting. So we treat it as one of the spiritual disciplines. So we say, yeah, i got to fast. i got to go without food for... I think I'll try an hour today, an hour. And we build ourselves up. Now, some of you are amazing pastors, I know that. But most of us aren't. And fasting is one of those things, yeah, we know that you're supposed to do it. But Nehemiah shows us how it is that he was able to fast. And the reason that he could fast, and if you look back in the scriptures, you're going to find that this is actually pretty consistent. Fasting is a response It's not just a discipline, it's a response to really seeing the big picture. It's a response to what's happening in the world or what's happening in our private lives. When we actually see the threat and the the trials in a big way, that's when we learn how to fast. Have you ever been through grief? I'm sure most of us have. If you haven't, you will. But one of the things with real grief is you can't eat. It just, you can't. It's just not there. And that's really where Nehemiah is. In the grief that he's experiencing about Jerusalem, about the glory of God's name, he can't even eat. And so he he fasts, and he prays, and he comes to God. And we want to see... Um, what that response is, how he prays, because that's our window into how to pray. And I put the the one verse up there, which is really the key verse of this whole scripture, is um, this verse 5. So he says in verse 5, I said in his prayer, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So, in other words, he knows God. That is the first number one thing of prayer, is to know who it is 
that you are praying to. Not just a name, not just God or Father or Lord God or however you address him. It's not just saying his name, but it's actually consciously thinking about who he is. And in that who, this is what he says. Now, in our English, um, I, I just think Hebrew is something we should all learn. At least a basic understanding of it to be able to read the Hebrew um, tools that we have. You don't have to know Hebrew to be able to appreciate it. In our English, it says, O Lord God of heaven. In the Hebrew, it says, Yahweh Elohim. That's so much bigger than what our English does. It's such a disservice sometimes, our English. It helps us to understand, but it would help if we did the Hebrew. Elohim, the great and awesome God. Elohim is the name of God that's used in creation back in Genesis 1.1. That Elohim created the heavens and the earth, the all-powerful one, the one who is separate from his creation, who is above all. We are the created. He is the creator. He is Elohim, the great one. And here Nehemiah says, Elohim, the great and the awesome God. There ought to be words in your vocabulary that are only used for God himself. For me, awesome is one of those words. I am not saying what other people say, because I know it's a commonly used word now in our vocabulary for anything that we see as good. But awesome is one of the words that I preserve for only using for God or what he's done, that he is an awesome God. What words do you have that you use exclusively for the Lord God Almighty? for Elohim. Maybe you even speak in Hebrew. That would be wonderful. I know some of you do. (laughs) So Elohim. And um, the second name that he uses together here is Yahweh. Now, they would not say that. No good Jewish person would actually say his name like that. They call him Hashem, which is the name. And, or they might say Adonai, which is the name for Lord. So they wouldn't even say his name. And it's, um, you know, it's really just those four letters, Y-H-W-H, and what we call the Tetragrammaton. And that name for God was given to Moses in Exodus 3, when Moses said, what is your name? And God, in his beautiful grace gave to Moses his personal name. It's God's personal name. Like Elohim is his name for the great creator, the awesome God who is above all, the all-powerful God. But Yahweh is his personal name. Now our culture has moved into personal names all over the place, but not their culture. And a personal name was only something that you used when you had an intimate relationship. And so when Nehemiah uses God's personal name, he's saying, we're personal, we're up close, we're intimate. And that's where he talks about God's loving kindness, his mercy, that he would be so merciful to call us into that kind of relationship with him. Do you know God's personal name? Do you speak to him on a personal level? 
Are you in that personal covenant relationship with him where it's just you and him? That's what Nehemiah is talking about. And he says that you, I know you, you know me. I know who you are, God, the great and awesome and all-powerful, and you know me, and you have extended loving kindness, mercy to me, to those who love you and keep your commandments. Now, he's not saying that God loves us because we keep his commandments. It's the other way around. God loves us. Nehemiah recognizes that, and because he's operating out of that place, he's able to keep God's commandments. We are able to keep God's commandments if we love him. That's what Jesus teaches. He doesn't say, well, I'll just love those who obey me. What he's really saying is, I love those who obey me because they have that covenant relationship with me, and now they're able to obey me. And so this is what Nehemiah says, and this is really the character of a warrior, is this one who knows God and is known by God and is in that covenant relationship. But he goes on in verses 6 and 7. Remember, he was born in Persia. He was not born in Israel, and yet this is what he prays. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which, what does it say? We... We have sinned. It doesn't say they. It says we. He's identifying with them, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, because these are all the things of the, a big part, the temple worship, which they didn't reinstate properly, um, which you commanded your servant Moses. And you can go back and see that in Leviticus, all the commandments that were given to Moses. And he says, we haven't done it. We have been sinful and rebellious. Do you see yourself that way? If that is not in your thinking, then I can tell you right now, you're not there. You're not there in understanding who you are in respect to who God is. And we have to get there. We don't stay there. But this is Nehemiah, this wonderful character that understands who God is, is saying this. And he's identifying, and he's saying, I know we haven't done it well. Now, you're an individual who has your own relationship with the Lord God, but then you live as a Canadian citizen. And Canada, as a nation, has a relationship with God. All nations do. They're either for him or against him. And we're part of that nation. And here we see Nehemiah praying that way. This helps us to figure out how we pray for our nation rather than pointing fingers to see we're part of it and to pray accordingly. And so he knows himself. He knows that he's sinful, rebellious. He knows the nation is. But he also knows loved by God, favored by God, and that he has God's ear. Let your ear now be attentive. He knows that he has God's ear. God is listening to him. When you pray, is it just words? Or are you really thinking about, you know, God's listening to me? Make those words count. He's not interested in all the flowery stuff and all the ad nauseum over and over and help me, help me, help me. He wants to hear 
relationship, just like you do with those that you talk to. You want relationship. And so this is what Nehemiah says, I know I have your ear. And he's realistic about the situation. He says, this is the way it is. Here we are. We're in this state, and we're in trouble, and there's nothing that we can do about it, and we need you, Lord God, to intervene and to help us. And so um, Nehemiah knows God, and he also knows himself. And in verses 8 to 9, we're going to see that he knows God's promises. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And he's quoting right out of Deuteronomy uh, 29 and 30. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered, like to Babylon, to Persia, were in the most, were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. That's back to Jerusalem. So he knows the promises of God. That was in Deuteronomy. Moses said that before they even got into the promised land. And he says, when you get to the promised land, this is going to happen to you, and this is what you're going to need to pray. And God will return you back to this land, to this promised land that we're going into, if you will repent and turn again and do the commandments of the Lord. Now maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've had a time where at one time you were pretty faithful, but you've fallen away, and you haven't done what God has told you to do. You know that. You don't need anybody to tell you that. You already know that. But the Lord says, repent and turn to me, and I will bless you, and I will put you back into this promised land, and you will be fruitful again. You won't be left scattered. You won't be unloved because I have loved you with an everlasting love and nothing you can do, including turning away from me, will lose that love I have for you. And so he calls his people back. He calls you back. He calls me back. And so do you know God's promises? Because that's his promise, is that if we repent, we are back in the promised land. And the promised land for us Christians is, is what we call operating in the Holy Spirit. That actually is the promised land. It's not heaven. It's now. It's operating in the Holy Spirit. And then in verses uh, 9, and um, I'll just read all of 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So he's praying with right motives. He's saying because it's God's glory. It's what God did. It's not about their military strength or their lack thereof. It's not about any of these things. It's about the relationship with God. That's what's caused the problem, and that's what's going to solve the problem, is their relationship with God. And so Nehemiah calls on God, and he says, you redeemed them by your great power and by your strong hand. And the last thing is, he's very specific of what it is that he's asking of the Lord. In verse 11, O Lord, I beseech you, 
May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him, talking about himself, compassion before this man, talking about King um, Artaxerxes. Because it says, now we find out, I was the cupbearer to the king. So he's got this key position. He's at every meal that the king and queen are at, both the public ones and the private ones that just the two of them are eating. There is Nehemiah. He's got the ear of the king. But that king is a very powerful king, and he's been burned by the people of Israel already. And he says, it's no shoe in that he's going to listen to me. Even though he looks to me and, and I seem to have a good relationship with the king and the queen, it's not a given that they will, that I will find favor when I start talking about Israel because Israel is in his bad books. And so I ask you, O Lord, I beseech you. Remember the first time Janice used that word when we were praying and I just loved it. It's like this, earnestness I beseech you and um, he beseeches him he beseeches the Lord to have compassion to give him favor in the eyes of our tax Xerxes and to um, have compassion that the king would have compassion on him so the character of a warrior know God know yourself to know God's promises to have the right motives in your prayer. You notice that it's not about Nehemiah. It's not a selfish prayer. It's okay to pray for things for ourselves, but what's your motivation? So you're comfortable? So life is good for you? Or for God's name to be glorified? That was totally what preoccupied Nehemiah, was God's glory, even serving this foreign king, even living in the palace and living pretty good. His focus was on the glory of God. Where's your focus? Do you pray with the right motives? And are you specific with what it is that you're asking of God? So um, hopefully through, as we look through the book of Nehemiah, we'll be learning not just about the character of a warrior, which was today, but how we go into um, the war. And, I mean, we're already in the war. The war is raging around us. We're in it. But how do we be effective warriors for God? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, you are the great and awesome and powerful God who has um, given to us a way of knowing you through Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much that you have brought us into um, relationship with you into this community of believers that you have, with your loving kindness, had so much compassion on us. I pray that we would learn how to look at the world through your eyes, through um, a biblical worldview, to see what is happening in the world, not according to what the televisions tell us or the podcasts, but according to your point of view, to see your name glorified. May that be what preoccupies us. And I pray that you would teach us how to be those strong and courageous warriors that live our lives for um, the kingdom, for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So I'm just going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to read to you from Romans. Chapter 11. And uh, the two verses, 33, and then I'll skip down to 36. But it's about God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.